Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast that bakes up the why we do what we do streusel and serves it with a cup of what's on your playlist espresso. Okay, really? Our <laughs> branding now is cake and coffee. I'm just trying to keep things fresh. <laughs> fresh. Okay. Food fresh. There we go. All right. How about this? Behavioral Grooves delivers great conversations with researchers, authors, and practitioners so listeners can apply great insights to their work and life. How's that for branding? Is that better? Well, that's that's really good. I'm just hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you need to eat breakfast before we do these. Come on. All right, Groovers, uh, back on track. Uh, this week is the second in our series of episodes with two guests, and we couldn't be happier to share our conversation with these two, who we have become more than just guests with since we met. They're good friends and colleagues, and we really appreciate their work. Yeah, and their book. Uh, and we want to we want to start by introducing um, the first the first of our guests, which is Jez Groom, and Jez is the founder of Cowrie Consulting in London, and he has established himself as one of the world's leading practitioners in the field. Uh, just a side note on this, that Kurt and I worked with Jez to co-found an organization called Diversify. And Diversify is the largest collaborative network of applied behavioral science practitioners in the world, comprising of over 180 experts working for 13 organizations globally, and we're growing. So just, just a little plug there. But as a pioneer, getting back to Jez, he has played instrumental roles in projects like Babies in the Burrow, which we featured in episode 167, uh, that used the murals of baby faces to fight crime, to changing hand-washing behaviors in a pig abattoir in Santiago, <laughs> to painting pink walls to reduce unsafe behavior on a construction site in London. He's done some fabulous stuff, but he is also an honorary research fellow at the Department of Psychology at Sydney University in London. And April Velicott is the behavioral consulting lead at Cowrie. Aside from being a dedicated and experienced practitioner, she holds degrees in psychology and behavior change. Together, April and Jez wrote an insightful book of case studies in behavioral science called Ripple, The Big Effects of Small Behavior Changes in Business. We urge you to go and check it out as it is not just informative, but it is really a pleasure to read. Really, really go out and buy this. In our conversation with Jez and April, we talked about the salient points from the book and about some of the techniques they've used to get business professionals to adopt behavioral science. We also covered a key pillar from their personal and professional missions to demystify and democratize behavioral science. It's a terrific conversation, and we hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did in having it. We also would like to remind you that Apple's recommendation algorithms incorporate ratings and reviews into them. And that means that your rating or review could go a long way to help other people learn about behavioral grooves, people you don't even know. People that might live across the world from you, okay? With that... That is one of the things that we just wanted to make sure you, you understood. Okay. So with that, relax a bit and grab a snack of demystifying behavioral science while you listen to our conversation with Jez and April. Jez Groom and April Velikot, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Thanks for having Thanks us. For having us. Oh, we are excited as always. Uh, 
uh, Ripple was a fantastic book, and we're excited to, to talk a little bit more about it. But before we get to that, we always start with a speed round. So uh, we have both of you here, so we're going to ask you both to answer these questions. But April, you're gonna you're gonna be on the on the you know line first here as we go. So dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite sports player, which would you prefer? Oh, it's definitely got to be a musician. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not a sports gal. Shall I specify the musician? I don't know. Yeah, which which sure, musician would this be? Uh, I I really I really love following John Legend on on Instagram. Oh. He's he's got a good personality, so maybe him. He would be probably a good person to have dinner with. I think. Yeah, he he's got a good chat. Really, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he makes good food. Yeah, there oh. you go. Wasn't he uh, the the most beautiful man in the world, or something like that? Didn't he just win that award last year, or two years I ago, mean, or something like whatever that? Whatever, whatever you say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kurt's got a soft spot, I think. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Des, how about you? What uh, what what's your thought about? It'd be sports person, um, and I think like most of the population in in lockdown, um, I've watched the the Last Dance, and um, I think Michael Jordan for me is just awesome. And one of my colleagues um, said, "You remind me a lot of Michael Jordan," <laughs> and, oh and that, oh, wow. exactly. And, and I reflected, going, "I'm five foot five um, from the northwest of England." <laughs> 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 and pretty never- pretty similar. Yeah, but I think I think yeah, it was more around the point of creating creating sort of mini battles sometimes, which aren't completely true. Um, so battles with yourself and setting challenges <laughs> of things that maybe your own interpretation of the truth. So so yeah, I think I think that would be that would be fair. Okay, okay. Second speed round question. We're blazing our way through this. Um, <laughs> April, would you prefer to be expert in a new language or expert in a new instrument? Oh, really interesting one. Okay. Um, I think expert in a new instrument, but I don't know if I can put my finger on why. I mean, a language would be more useful, but I think as a, as a vanity project and also to have a party trick, um, I think I'd rather be expert in a new instrument. All right. Any idea of what that instrument might be? I think may, yeah, may, maybe something that, that's readily available around people's houses, so may, maybe a piano. I can give it a tinkle when I'm around John Legend's house. <laughs> there you go. Have dinner with John at his nice house. Tie. Play the piano. Nicely nice done. Tie. All right, yeah. Jez, your turn. Um, yeah, I, I think a new language, but may, maybe slightly sort of different one. It's it's my wife. I mean, I, I, I consider myself to be quite good at behavioral science, but the language my wife uses to get me to do things is just immense. And I don't know how she does it. Um, so, you know, do you think the kitchen might look better a bit like that? You know, is, 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 <laughs> okay. I, I will paint the kitchen next week. <laughs> it's just, yeah, she's pretty immense. She's the, the uh, best, yeah, the best nudger. So yeah, so if I could like a, she sounds like a behavioral scientist. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> nudging. Yeah, yeah, she's she's ahead of the curve. I, th- I think I think yeah. There's a lot of people in the world. Maybe just above half have been ahead of the behavioral science curve for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, third question. Travel with an explicit itinerary or with no itinerary at all? Now, this is uh, granted that you can actually travel and we're not being stuck in <laughs> quarantine here. But when you do get to travel, do you travel with a uh, an itinerary that you, you follow or just go and 
whatever happens, happens. April? That's a that's a really easy one for me. It's de- definitely I've planned out every minute to, <laughs> <laughs> to a T. Yeah, I want to know exactly where I'm going, what what train I'm getting on, where I'm staying. Yeah. No, no, I just like, backpack going through no, I, I Asia, like, kind of like wherever it lands me. I like the control. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jazz, how about you? Um, I think this is the reason why myself and April work very, very well together. And um, when we did it, we did our risk profiles. So we did some psychometrics and yeah, we're opposite ends of the spectrum. So, so um, yeah, I'm definitely, my, my risk profile was carefree and adventurous. Um, and yeah, I particularly liked advent- adventurous, carefree suggests that sometimes a bit careless. And then, um, but I, I, um, yeah, I, I reflected about the first holiday I went on with my wife when I was 19 and um, we we arrived in an airport, but we, we'd only planned out our journey on the flight together, which was only a three hour flight to Turkey um, with a, a Lonely Planet book. If you remember those Lonely Planet books, we had that uh-huh. and we read that. Um, and yeah, it, it was, yeah, I would say, I don't know if it's an American expression, definitely an English one or a British one, which is it was higgledy piggledy that holiday. And um, so we um, we went all over the place. So yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of higgledy piggledy. I think working in creative industries, um, the, the messiness of processes is quite fun. It can be frustrating, but a lot of fun. Um, as long as it's got some structure and an outcome. Um, but yeah, I really like the the messiness of creativity. That's that's fabulous. We'll have to have a, a lexicon at the end of the uh, of the of the broadcast to make sure that <laughs> listeners around the world understand what higgledy piggledy means. Higgledy piggledy. Yeah. yeah um, okay. Uh, great. Uh, I always just thought it was a word from a nursery rhyme, but uh, yeah, that, that's great. So, uh, okay, last this is our last. It, it, you know, again, just plowing through our speed round as quickly as we possibly can. <laughs> our, our last, our final speed round question: April is behavioral science something that just works in some countries but not in others? I mean, I would say uh, behavioral science it, it's going to work on any anyone as long as they're human, right? I mean, there will I think there will be cultural differences for sure, um, and you know we we've only just started to touch the the tip of the iceberg with that um, at Cowrie, um, but yeah, I'd say there's definitely nuances, but it's kind of um, the the beauty of it is in these kind of semi universalities, if you will. Right, okay. Perfect. Okay, Jez. I think it works in all countries, but different in all countries. Uh, some of the work we've done with some of the big tech companies has identified some really interesting and quite stereotypical uh, findings. So um, I think in France, Italy, uh, Spain, and UK, we're quite happy to buy things without reading terms and conditions. Um, but in Germany, if you don't have enough terms and conditions, <laughs> then they won't buy the product. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, right. so yeah. So I think ambiguity. Um, I think we're happy with that. I think in the more lesser. <laughs> more you know whereas maybe more teutonic um but but that's been borne out by the research you know we're only looking at the behavioral sort of features and and yeah so so i think everyone's the same with some differences it would be my roundabout way of answering that question well, and of course, the reason that that I ask is because uh, one of the things that we love about Ripple, the big effects of small behavior changes in business, is the fact that it's completely international. You mm-hmm. internationalize the, the the narrative in a way that's really 
clear that that you've got an underlying message that this isn't just something for a specific city, a specific country, a specific class of of uh, industry. Um, how is it that you uh, was there? I guess I should just check. Was that an underlying mission that you wanted to be explicit about in writing the book? Yeah, I think um, when um, when we we started to uh, stress test and probe uh, the use of behavioral science, so maybe two or three years after after Nudge was written, um, you know, the application, we had this amazing opportunity to to do it in different places around around the world. So I'm I'm not so sure that the objective was. Um, let's see if this works in different markets. It was more about how does it work in different markets and, mm. and let's see what in different environments where it can be applied. Um, and I think that's the genius, but but maybe kind of the difficulty of maybe why behavioral science hasn't grown as quickly, certainly as I would have thought, which is that um, it can apply to lots and lots and lots and lots of different things. Um, so applying a focus to generate some momentum um, I think hasn't helped. Um, and um, I think in those early days, uh, we used to have a line which said, you know, if your problem involves people, then we can help. Um, if it's a clock, uh, we're not very good. Um, <laughs> and um, which was neat. It was neat. Um, but but it, it just doesn't help you start to build build momentum. And I think working with April and the team, you know, we, we're very much focused now on uh, business and then all about employee and, and customer experience so so we can make an impact there we know we can do lots of other things but that's where where we go um so i think you know it was more it was more out of curiosity rather than by design the international flavor um but i think after 10 years looking back and looking at all the research around weird markets uh for sure you know we're, we're really looking to see you know, we linked in with the Basara Center, uh, Nick Owsley um, in Central Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, David Parrott is in South Africa. Sonia Adam, um, and Vishal Darrell in Australia, New Zealand. You guys in the states. You know, we need to build this community up and start sharing this stuff, um, and we're really keen to do that. Yeah. So, April, why don't you give us an overview of the book uh, for for the listeners as they are hearing about it for maybe the first time. What What is Ripple? I mean, Tim outlined the the title, but obviously you guys set out to, to do something here and, and give us a, the 30,000 foot overview. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, Ripple is the book that, that kind of wasn't out there when I was doing my postgraduate study in behavior change. So, you know, me and my um, classmates were all just yearning for we were just yearning for examples of how um all of these amazing insights from behavioral science had been applied in the real world um and also in the private sector you know so so many of us were interested in um the world of business but um there just there wasn't there wasn't really this um wealth of case studies out there and you can you can kind of understand why um people in the private sector maybe aren't so transparent about how they're using behavioral science you know if you've got competitive edge because of this um amazing thing that you're using you might not want to share it with your um with your competitors so um what ripple does is it basically it lifts the lid on you know jez's decade of experience of applying behavioral science in the world of business and it sets out to kind of demystify um how it's done you know so it kind of it gives you this practical toolkit um, for how to go about applying behavioral science in your role 
Um, and it doesn't matter if you're not um, the CEO of of your business. You know, it doesn't matter. You can be um, you could be any level, and you can start applying nudges to um, to help you work better, and also to um, to make the business more successful. So it kind of takes you on a journey around the world, as as we touched on um, with all of these um, with all of these case studies and stories to inspire you and hopefully once you're inspired then tell you how to how to go about doing it yeah i think the case studies are really what drew me in right understanding the science behind those case studies i think you've guys done a really nice job but there's these stories there you're telling these stories of real businesses or real governments with real problems and the way that you are applying behavioral science in order to uh, uh, look at those problems, but then also come up with solutions for them. So is there a favorite, I mean, you, you, you talk about, you know, everything from water in France versus England, you know, the types of water you drink to, uh, you know, uh, obesity in, in Mexico. Is there a favorite story? Uh, and, and maybe both of you have different ones. So I'll, I'll, I'll ask April first, is there a favorite story uh, or example that you have from, from the book? I think so. I think my favorite story comes, it comes at the very end of the book. So chapter 14. Um, so it kind of brings together all of the tips that we've kind of outlined in all the, in all the chapters before. And it kind of gives you this end to end case study of how we applied behavioral science to have these, um, these amazing impacts on behavior. And um, uh, the chapter's called Preventing Fools with Pink Walls. So it's it's a really, really counterintuitive story all about how we went onto this um, this construction site in London, so beside the River Thames. And, you know, it's quite it's quite a gritty environment. Um, and needless to say, um, the guys on site were a little bit dubious that um, these psychologists were coming in and suggesting that we paint the walls of their canteen pink um so that, that that is essentially what we did so um sometimes you know they were they were cutting corners um they were trying to get get the job done a little bit quicker and they weren't always behaving in really safe ways so um it's really important for these construction businesses that they've got these squeaky clean health and safety records um and so that's why they got us involved they thought well what if we could use behavioral science to to give us the edge on our on our competitors um so we came in and um you know one of the things is that it's it's a very male environment as you'd imagine on these construction sites um so you know often the young guys had pretty high testosterone um and they were kind of taking risks because of this and the older guys kind of had this attitude of well you know it's never happened to me you know i'm i'm safe because you know i know i know exactly what i'm doing so um so we implemented these these three interventions, but the one that's the most um, attention grabbing is the is the painting the walls of their canteen pink, um, and yeah, it's quite it's quite sweet. I think a lot of the guys um, they they got quite fond of the the pink walls, and um, I think yeah, the the construction company have rolled them out across all of their sites. Um, nationwide. Now, so. That's good. Oh, that's that's all right. Fantastic. And what was the effect? What was the what was the measured effect? Just tell us what what what's the outcome of of pink walls? Yeah, I mean, we had we had three interventions that all ran at the same time. So we had pink walls, uh, a reward scheme, uh, which we re-engineered uh, to reward good behavior rather than penalize 
penalise bad behaviour, and then we change the scripting of a particular interaction of, of the, the employees. But uh, as April said, um, Pippa, who, who was one of our psychologists, we to avoid the Hawthorne effect, um, we had to send her up to do observational work. So, I mean, I, I, I did all the tests. I did all the health and safety training. I went on site. And, and as I've got older, I've got vertigo. But it was on the 28th floor of a building overlooking the River Thames. It was really quite high. And you went into this workplace. It was it was it was dangerous you know it was and um, but Pippa was like fine and and so so we positioned her as like a well-being expert and as she walked around the floor um unbeknownst to the people uh working she had two clickers one was to to measure observations on poor behaviors for working at height uh, and another one was material movement so so it avoided the Hawthorne effect and she did that um, for four weeks um, every day at different hours of the day on different floors to essentially give us the data set we wanted to and then for 12 weeks so it was like a 16 week period um, we uh, we measured um, and then we normalized the data for things like it, you know if there was loads of people working at height one day obviously that would that would disproportionately influence uh, one way or the other so we normalized the data and uh, yeah there was this minus 82 percent um, working at height and I think it's minus 93% for, for material movement. And the P scores uh, were I think one in 69, and then it's almost above one in 4,000. So, so wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, one of the things that, that, yeah, we captured the imagination and piqued the interest with the, the drunk tank pink and Baker Miller pink. And, um, but we really don't know which of the different interventions um, work the hardest and, and pure, Hardcore behavioral science say that's a fundamental flaw in the behavioral design. And, um, and, and we play it back to say, actually, we'd had this conversation with the client that says, we're going to re-engineer a reward scheme that already exists. We're going to re-script a conversation that already exists. And instead of you painting them white, we're going to paint them pink. So the cost wasn't that huge. Because what we're looking for is behavior change. We're not looking to prove whether a behavioral principle works or not. And if we can replicate this model across all of our sites, which we've done the business case work on, if it does work, then that's great. We'll do all of these three things together. And um, otherwise, we would have had to try and do like, a. I mean, how do you do a randomized control trial on a construction site? I mean, this is like the biggest building in, in South London on the River Thames. I mean, you can't find any other place in the world that quite like that. So, yeah. so yes, I think that was, that was the measurement. And um, the Hawthorne effect was real. Um, so what we found was that if you walked around as a safety expert um, looking at, at measurement, um, what, what the guys had sort of told us kind of in between meetings was they, they actually have a code. So, so you know, Kurt and Tim, if you, if you were the, the health and safety guys on the construction site, you'd walk around the corner and they shout Kilimanjaro. And that is their code for health and safety are coming around the corner. Can you do everything oh, right? Wow. And then, uh, as soon as you go off site, uh, then they refer back to the norm, which is cutting corners. Now, that wasn't on this site. I have to stress this wasn't on, on, on the site that we were working on. But that was kind of like the, the cultural phenomena that existed within these types, types of workers. Um, so, yeah, the site we were working on was for Shell um, and it was the Shell headquarters. So the health and safety standards had to be at the highest, highest level, if not the best in the world. And that's why they wanted behavioral safety. They really felt that uh, behavioral science could bring that extra extra piece, which it certainly did. Well, I think you bring up a really good point that you know, when you look at we, – we talk with researchers, we talk with academics all the time, and, and they're always looking to isolate what are the the dependent variables and, and the various aspects of this. And yet sometimes when you're working with businesses, which Tim and I both do, mm -hmm. uh, they, they don't care. 
I mean, if I'm talking to a CEO of an organization, he doesn't care which of those three interventions. I mean, to a certain degree, he might, but you know, yeah. for the most part, he doesn't really care if it was the the, the changing of the incentives, if it was painting the walls pink. He just yeah. cares, or yeah. she cares, that it is making an impact on on the yeah. bottom line. And yeah. and I think sometimes we we get in our high horse and as, as researchers and we, we forget that. And, and I think it's one of the interesting pieces. And I, I'm going to just quote from, from the book, because this mm-hmm. is one of the things that, that I found really powerful. And, and it's where you're talking about, um, you know, how do you get, how, how do you talk, how do you get business people who may not be interested or even have a, a clue about behavioral science uh, saying mm-hmm. that, yeah, this is something we should do. And you said the first step, and I quote here, mm-hmm. the first step in getting people to acknowledge the power of behavioral science is to illuminate their own psychological biases and for them to experience the fallibilities of their brain firsthand. I just mm-hmm. love that line because <laughs> I think it's so true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just help our listeners in, in you know expanding upon that. I mean, I, I guess... You both will be familiar with, you know, trying to explain what you do at a party. Um, <laughs> and someone who doesn't really get it, the, the best way to do it through lots of trial and error is to is to somehow show them that that you know they're not immune to these biases um, and heuristics either. You know, all all of us have these these mental shortcuts that we fall prey to. Um, and you know, so um, what what we do as a business at Cowrie is we often um, will often begin um, our relationship with a client by um, by giving them a really simple quiz. And you know, it seems it seems simple to them, um, but we've designed we've designed the quiz um, to catch them out. So every single question, we're kind of um, we're, we're we're tapping into one of these um, shortcuts and biases that they might fall prey to. So one, the very first question is a battenable cost a dollar ten in, in total, and the bat costs a dollar more than a ball. How much does the the ball cost? Um, and so we go through them we go through them very quickly, which is a little bit cheeky. Um, and then we reveal at the end that the person who thought they were the smartest person in the room has in fact got um, the least answers correct. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> after that, it's pretty tricky to then um, deny that this stuff is real and that it affects all of us. Um, and it, it, it provides a really good platform from which to kind of spring into our recommendations um, for their business. I, I, I'm interested in just going down the whole rabbit hole of what's your favorite party trick with behavioral science, but I feel like that might be a little <laughs> off topic. Um, maybe we'll do that um, after the recording. Okay, so I, I want to. I, I actually want to get back to uh, something that April brought up earlier about the book that it can apply to people. Uh, Across the organization, regardless of the your job title or the role that you're doing, there can be some application to this, and and um, it's a democratization, really, on uh, it, uh, one aspect of the democratization of the uh, you know of behavioral science. And I wanted you guys just, uh, if you could just take a minute to expand on this as to why you think that that's an important message to carry in the book. Yeah. I mean, it, it's such an amazing toolkit. It almost feels unfair that there's this real imbalance. And, you know, we've got all of the knowledge and um, these businesses don't have any of it. And it, it kind of seems 
unfair for us to hold those keys and um, ask them to ask for our help every time um, they they want to they want to solve a problem. So something that's really important to us um, when we were writing Ripple, but also as a as a business, is to is to teach all of our clients to start using this stuff themselves. And you know it doesn't it does it doesn't take you know one day. It takes um, it takes a, a period of months. You know hand holding. Um, to get them to a stage where they can start to apply it um, themselves, um, but yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be the most senior person in an organisation who, from the top down, is saying behavioural science is a really important thing for us to focus on. I think what we've found going into businesses is that you actually need um, someone who's a little bit closer to the coalface, who really understands the problems, who becomes almost a bit of an evangelist for behavioral science in the business and can then kind of work, work their way around the organization to kind of drive change from the bottom up. Um, and so that's why it's, it's, it's really important for us to empower people at all different levels in the organization to start applying this stuff in their daily role. And, you know, it's really gratifying for us to see our clients start nudging us in emails Jez, I wanted, I wanted to get your, your feedback on that as well. I think on a, on a more practical level and a more human level, um, I think early, early in my kind of applied behavioral science career, I, I fell into that trap, which I think a lot of people do and, and hold dear to their hearts, which is I want to be the cleverest person in the room. <laughs> I want to be intellectually superior and hold like uh, the the insights and and what's i don't know it it seems like sort of a paradox that often the insights um once you boil them down are are often very very simple and easy to understand so people talk about reciprocity which is a really hard word to say so if you've never heard that word before you always say it wrong we find which undermines your credibility quickly essentially it's like i do something for you so therefore you do something for me. It's like, it's not the hardest thing. Yeah, yeah, we can dress that up, you know, and I think Cialdini does an amazing job of, of kind of, but I think other other academics sometimes interpret it and try and make it something that's not. So I think that's the first thing, that these are human insights that, that humans understand, that they might not understand they're going on in their own minds some of the time. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing, which is critical, which is if you don't translate the insights into usable assets, often when you look to to intervene and start to look to change behavior, essentially your your device, your your design is often people delivering that. So so what you've got to do is explain why it's important, what the the ethics are behind why what we're doing, that's leading to a good good outcome for the citizen or or, or the customer, um, and also for the company, and those two things that aren't mutually exclusive. Um, But they have to deliver it. So, So it's never been more relevant for me when we work in contact centers and service centers, that often you find there's different cohorts of people with different levels of academic uh, levels and yeah ultimately though these are the guys uh, and girls that are delivering the intervention you know we mentioned the construction site early so so yeah so I, I think you know you can look really really clever um, you can make it complicated but then you're going to end up with a, a null result for your for your design of your intervention and this is kind of like a real I feel really passionate about it that that I think behavioral scientists make for really bad behavioral designers. Uh, and they're really surprised when some of their interventions don't work because they look really good in a paper. And you go, 
it just wow. looks rubbish, you know? And I think we've got five behavioral designers at Cowrie who are all psychologists, um, but are really passionate about, about design. And, and um, we feed in stimulus and strategy and concepts, and they really bring them to life in a, in a way that, that design people do, design thinkers do. And, and, and for me, that's it. I mean, I'll give you an example. I once did some work, we, we mentioned in the book, we talk about obesity, but I remember being on a literature review within within the government in the uk and there's a literature review done around all these interventions around obesity and um they come up one of the interventions was a cartoon characters for vegetables and you know there's all these like fun guys and lots of stuff and and they they put this this cartoon out and and it didn't work and, and they were going it's got everything in it it's got all the right models it's got all the right frameworks it's got all the all the right psychological principles it's got, and i was going yeah i was going but it looks like 1974 hannah barbera Right. And this is like Toy, Toy Story was at number three, I think, you know, it was on Toy Story three. And the, the, the kids are like, you know, where's Woody? You know, now, now for, for maybe slightly older people like me, it would have been really retro and kitsch and we would have loved it. The, the Hanna-Barbera. And, um, and uh, but it was just the design of the final intervention was so poor. It, all the behavioral science in the world wasn't going to help it out. And, and I think that is the critical point that that we're really pushing into that we want to essentially have a real respect for design um and it is about the colors the shapes the words how things feel um it's not just about the science yeah I, i'm not surprised that, that a lot of people want to appear clever uh, on paper but actually um democratizing the insights and making things more design and fluent is, is really important yeah and we've we've also you know talked with people who are applying this and and the researchers and, and the applications that some of the researchers are done in a lab that's very controlled setting that has very specific pieces and is again searching for that one minute little aspect of, of what they're doing. And then when you take that and you try to generalize that out into the general workplace, you have so many other contextual aspects that are going on that either it gets lost or it doesn't have the same impact. And I think mm-hmm. oftentimes it's, it's really important to understand that, but we also have to understand uh, these these interventions that we're doing that we're designing to your point you know you can't have a cartoon that looks like it's crap and from 1970 in a world in in 2020 that that mm-hmm. just doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. cut it and the fact that you know we are living in a very complex convoluted world that doesn't always allow us to be able to spend 30 seconds to focus on something we only have a, a second or two and so you have to you have to adjust for that. And I'm not sure if, if everybody always does that. Mm-hmm. I want to go back. There's two, two pieces I want to go back to. So um, just talking about how, uh, April, you were talking this idea of, you know, bringing this back into, into the workplace and various different things. And I, I, one of the aspects of the book that I, I enjoyed was this do-it-yourself aspect. And so I just want to point out for our readers that at it's within each chapter and it's not just one point. It's a multitude of, of points. I forget how many actually you have in there, uh, but you have this whole do it yourself kit that takes some of these principles that you've identified, summarizes them down into a paragraph or two, maybe a little bit more uh, and offers some really clean insights for people to use. So I think you're, point of education. I just, I wanted to point that out from the book. And then Jez, you talked a thing about ethics and Mm -hmm. I'd like to get your thoughts on ethics because I think it is one of the bigger pieces that we as behavioral scientists, as behavioral designers, as applied behavioral scientists, however you want to call us, uh, need to take into account. And I, I think it's some of the bigger concerns that some people have out there. They're going, oh, you are just manipulating 
us with your interventions? What, mm-hmm. What's your take on that? A really good question. And I love this question. Yeah. So I, I, I love to be incredibly transparent, transparent. And, you know, as, as the field develops, it's important that we sort of listen to the interpretations of, of kind of the forefathers. So I think Cass Sunstein has been amazing at outlining w- what this looks like. Um, you know, and, you know, he had an, a very elegant line about, you know, the art of, of nudging in itself is not unethical. Um, but in the hands of a poor practitioner, it, it can be. And that's true of medicine, of law, of finance, you know, it's, it's, it's of a lot of things. So I think that's so so, so for, for sure um, it can be used in ways um, which lead to a, a, an asymmetry in, in favour of those people designing designing those experiences. But that's that's not our start point. Um, uh, <laughs> it, it's so funny. We, we look in the world of business and how businesses interact with, with people they're so badly designed there's so much work to be done just making that like easy you know more frictionless more fluent to, to even get to that point where you have to have to get to that point like I, I think we could do it for like another good 10 years you know and um, so 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 that's kind of like there's a, just a panacea of opportunity to make really badly or ill thought of these experiences into things that are fairly reasonable and we all know what they are um and um, so i think that's that's the first point Be, being a little bit more a bit more more serious when we started to look at what factors we thought were the most important in customer decision making we, we went to the regulators because we're very very fortunate and, and you guys in the states are too where you know you've got people that are, that are sitting within government that are setting out regulatory frameworks for how you use behavioral science in practice so that's where we started so so our fundamental is the factors we use tend to be the ones that tend to be most influential um, and we have those baked in as kind of, of our of our start point and um, so appropriate uses of, of defaults and inappropriate uses of defaults and, and being aware of those um, the the second one is making sure that um, the values of your company are, are uh, aligned with uh, the way that this stuff um, should be used so we, we have three values we, we're ambitious we're, and what we mean by that is we're ambitious for the growth of behavioral science worldwide because we, we do think the world's pretty badly designed care so we care we really do care because we are dealing with people's decision making and has certain outcomes and consequences and then integrity so we want to have our hold our heads high um, and believe that we're act- acting within um, the the social um, and ethical constraints of the communities in which we operate in so, so that's the, the, the second the second one um, and then the, the third one would be you have to have a code of ethics um, and and we've done an, an audit and we can't find, um, and please tell us if it's the case, but we've got our ethical framework on our website. So if people want to come in and have a look at our ethical framework, it's there to see. Um, and uh, we talk about a lot of the things that, that Cass uh, talks about, about making sure that options aren't limited and people can choose otherwise. Um, so avoiding that sludge and, and fishing that, that Robert Schiller would often talk about. And um, so, yeah, we, we talk about it. I mean, we were talking about it just, just before we came on the call about when we're working with clients, um, that we call out, you know, unknowingly sometimes if a business is, is looks to try and do something which might be actually we can get a conversion rate up here um, and we'll call it out to say, yes, you can, but it has these consequences and we're not comfortable with that. Yeah, it's it's very, very close to our hearts, but we're very, very uh, transparent. And I mean, April, I don't know if you want to build on it that we've yeah, yeah. it's something we really 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 sort of revel in we're quite proud of the work we do i'm very happy for people to, to look open the bonnet um because we have these debates ourselves ongoing 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a conversation, like Jess says, that we have with clients a lot too. Um, and so, I mean, we we could do one training course for um, a big finance company and then say kind of, you know, off you go, go ahead and design interventions and um, nudges to your heart's content. Um, but we know that, like as, as Jess said, if you just know the principles, but you're not fully aware of all of the unintended consequences that you could be um, triggering and all these things, um, then it could be a bit of a loaded gun in the wrong in the wrong hands so I mean we're, we're kind of it's a kind of a nurturing relationship where we're there on hand to kind of advise when they're starting to kind of do it themselves um, and it's something that we kind of we we want to embed in our training too to kind of make people aware of all of the kind of the nudges but also the all of the sludge that's out there yeah I mean it's one of my favorite things to do is spotting sludge especially on the internet there's there's a lot of there's a lot of dodgy ux out there to to try and get you to click somewhere that you might not want to click oh yeah 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 we 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 care we care deeply about the ethical application and it just uh it's so great uh in visiting your website to see your very uh vocal uh you know pronouncement of this is what we believe in and this is how we operate our business that's really cool thank you uh also in writing a book, you have to do a lot of reflection. You had to dig deep into things. And I'm wondering if both of you could reflect on on what do you think is or some of the greatest behavioral interventions, most impactful behavioral interventions as as you were going back and, and pulling things from uh, from your, your experience? The key, the key learning for me was kind of building on this theme around behavioral science in a, in a lab in a box isn't the same as behavioral science in the real real world and making sure you've got the the ecosystem and and, and the relationships to, to make things come to life and in the book we talk about um, it's my favorite ever idea um, it wasn't my idea it, it, it was Dan's and um, but we, we were trying to get um, essentially women in Thailand to utilize this new product from one of the, one of the big FMCG brands and um, it was a product that um, essentially made hand washing a lot easier. So so when you're rinsing out, um, is it in Thailand, it takes usually about three hours to wash the clothes. You've got three buckets. Um, and this particular product allowed you to rinse out the, the, the um, I suppose, the comfort, the sort of smelling agent, the softening agent quicker. So you, you didn't have all that manual sort of labor. So it would have saved about half an hour of, of these ladies' time in, in that culture. They did a lot of the washing. And, um, and then that could be better time spent with their family. But because the product looked the same, it was sold in the same shops, in the same shelves, in the same packaging and was just smaller and customers were told that they didn't need to do as much effort the bizarre thing was the women bought the product um, but they actually just rinsed three times anyway so so it was kind of crazy so we we did this workshop and we couldn't go to thailand in this instance but we kind of brought it in-house and had this really strange experience where we were all hand washing in the basement of a fancy hotel in in london with the the team from thailand came over it was it was just <laughs> more effective that way it was kind of crazy um and yeah i mean i think we April talks about it in the book that at one point it was hilarious that Rory Rory was on his hands and knees in a women's toilet with his roll, sleeves rolled up washing clothes with with this particular product. It was quite a moment. And that was um, great. That was a great image, by the way. That oh, was so it was. To me it was, was so funny. And um, but but it was interesting. But the workshop wasn't going the way that we wanted it to. And we had this idea prepared. And it was this. It was essentially it was a, a, a bucket that had these. Um, 
I suppose, design features that made, if, if the product essentially had greater efficacy, we needed to demonstrate that it required slightly more effort for it to work. So the effort reward heuristic, like the Mikea effect. So um, I think you've heard Rory talk about um, red and blue stripes in toothpaste drives effort reward heuristic and the Mikea effect is well known. And so we wanted to say, actually, if we add some more technicality to the washing process, make it more specific and precise, then the efficacy of the product could be borne out and, and the women will tell themselves they only need to wash once because they've been very specific about how much water is in the bucket. Um, they're going to have to release some of the water at a certain point on milliliters. It's got um, ripples on the side. We called it ripple release technology on the side of this bucket. So we had to create a bucket. And uh, we were in an advertising agency, right? So we made TV films that we were like, how do you create a bucket? So so we, we kind of kind of went out into like the relationships we had. And, and this is genuinely what happened. We, we got a costing um, to get a CAD design, um, which was really expensive for this particular bucket. And then we then costed to, to go to China to get the minimum plastic run for these buckets. Um, and the buckets cost, I kid you not, they were something like 15,000 pounds each for a plastic, oh for a plastic <laughs> bucket. This is for a plastic bucket. So, I mean, we were getting paid more than that for the consultancy, thank goodness, but it wasn't a hugely amount more. So, so that was the first thing. So the second thing was we then said, why don't we kind of just modify a bucket? So we tried to get some guys to modify a bucket. And because you know, plastic's malleable, but you can see when you've been malleable with it, um, we kind of went, down and it would have been like three thousand pounds per bucket um to get a product that was just about passable but you could still see where the tap had been stuck on and the ripples weren't really quite right and all that sort of stuff and even the the idea is genius uh, but we just didn't have design thinking at a product level at that time within our capabilities and for me that was that was a key thing that i felt maybe sitting in an advertising agency isn't necessarily the best place always for bit for behavioral design and actually building a network of people that can do things digitally but also things physically it was a real jump off point was um yeah it was <laughs> yeah it, I, I mean we, I, I kid you not we did try and sell um the fifteen thousand pound bucket but yeah it didn't wash <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and it, is, it is my favorite line in the book. So, April, I don't know if you remember the line in the book, which was, it's just, it is, it, this, I mean, kid you not, this is my favorite line, line in the book that April, April wrote. Uh, what was it? You, we, we realized we couldn't make a bucket unless we had bucket loads of cash. Bucket loads of cash. Here we go. So it says, <laughs> so here it goes. It goes, despite a successful workshop, insightful analysis of the behavioral problem and an interesting idea which everyone believed in, there was a missing link. Nobody in the room knew how to make a bucket unless they had bucket loads of cash. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, that's my favorite line. It's so good. Poetry. April, what about you? What what, what kind of observations do you come away? Do How, how do you feel a little, a little bit smarter about behavioral science after after compiling all this information? Do you know what? I, th I think one of the... One of the most important things that um, that we've kind of learned time and time again is that it's that it's that very first project that you do that can sometimes be it can sometimes be the, the simplest one as well. So that that time when you, when you do the you apply behavioral science for the very first time within a business, um, it's it can it can have the biggest effect on um, I mean how successful 
the business is going to be applying behavioral science because I mean it can it can be sometimes one of the simplest interventions that you do and it can it can sometimes be it can sometimes seem a bit boring you know so a lot of our pilots are going in and helping um, the guys in contact centers to tweak some of the words they're saying um, to um, have better outcomes for their customers and also help them enjoy enjoy their jobs more um, and it's not nearly as sexy as designing a whole new bucket or um, creating a hand stamp that changes hand washing behavior or painting a wall pink um, but you know getting that first proof point um, it can have a really really big impact on the bigger things that they can do down the line it's kind of a key to unlock the potential in the organization and it's it's something that we talk about in in chapter seven, um, we talk about, you know, how do you how do you start scaling um, something like behavioral science across a whole entire organization? And we talk about um, the proofing ladder. So there are, there are these different um, rungs on a ladder that y- you have to systematically climb in order to to be able to leverage behavioral science at scale. Um, in an organization and unlock the kind of full potential of it and the very first step on that ladder is doing a pilot and it can be something really simple and it might not be um, all that attention grabbing or newsworthy um, but it can unlock some really amazing opportunities further down the line. April do you think that's because it's a proof of of concept of behavioral science in and of itself. So you're getting leadership on board with it. Is it, is it because maybe there's, it's the low hanging fruit because the company hasn't done anything. And this is like, Oh, super simple intervention here. And we can have a big impact. Is it some combination of that? Or is it something totally different? So tell you what I think it is. I think it's kind of, um, it's kind of the next stage on from what we were talking about earlier, the way you've got to bring behavioral science to life for people on an individual level, um, you know, just, just like people will say, well, it's, it's all very well um, saying that's, that stuff applies to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. Um, I mean, the same things happen at a collective level for a business. They say, well, it might work. It might work in that company, um, but it's definitely not going to work for us. So you, you kind of, you get that, that little proof point and then yeah. suddenly they realize the potential for their business. That, that's my favorite client line. No, 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 no. My people are different. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about music. Jez loves to talk about music too. Jez loves to oh, good. personally progress my historical music education before I was born. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, Tim will yeah. be there with you. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah. I give him grief about, you know, oh, he, he listened to a band after 1978. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I just, you, you and I, when we, when we have a chance to get mm-hmm. together and uh, be in the same place in the same pub and uh, mm-hmm. have a pint together, yeah. we're going to, we're going to talk, we're going to talk deep music. What <laughs> I would like to start, <laughs> what I'd like to start with though, is the, writing a book uh, takes a lot of work and you work a lot with clients where you're having to write and think, do you listen to music while you do work? And I'm interested in both of your, your thoughts about that. For, for me, um, yeah, music is quite essential for my work. I just, I, especially when, if, if you're in an open plan office, um, which is 
wonderful for extroverts to collaborate and stuff, but not so great for introverts like me. Um, I sometimes need to kind of block out the surrounding noise in order to to focus and get stuff get stuff done. But yeah, e- even if I'm just um, if I was plugging away at the writing at home, I'll I'll put on some ha- house music is my is my <laughs> weapon of choice. <laughs> um, yeah, I like a, a four on the floor kick drum to kind of keep, mm. keep me focused. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. Jez, how about you? I, I've got three teenage boys um, and, and they like the phenomena of listening to, to music in, in the background as they work. And it's an intense debate in our house. And after being in creative industries, you know, I, I've seen, seen that work, you know, it's been part of the part of the fabric. I think for me personally, um, I, I use music. It, again, it is, I, I mean, I think everyone's st- stuck. I don't know about you, Tim, but, you know, the music you listen to when you're sort of 18 to 21, it stays with you. And and what I found was, I mean, it might be maybe a, l- a little bit too deep, I know, but I think it's true, which is um, wh- whenever I, I listen to music, it does take me back to that time of my life. And, and you know, you're open to it new influences you're learning about new things you're quite open-minded and I you know so I think often I find if I'm listening to music it takes me back to that time where I was freer of quite a lot of the 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 influences and and the complications of everyday life and so you know I grew up in Manchester um, and there's a big Manchester scene at that time but but it does it takes me back to kind of a more I suppose clearer thought more pure thinking um, uh, as opposed to where I am now, which is the, the spinner of many plates um, and occasionally drop one, and um, which um, isn't so helpful. So, yeah, I think using music as a device to get you to a place of clear thought has been really good. But I, I can't I can't write and, and listen to music at the same time. I find that particularly difficult. Oh. I think that's really interesting what you said, Jess. I think, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by how music and also smells are just, they're, they're amazing triggers for almost time travel and kind of triggering nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, they they, mm. they they go right to, you know, the the reptilian part of our brains then yeah. bypass a lot of the prefrontal cortex aspects of it. So when yeah. when that happens. But Music, we, we asked this question actually, we're, we're uh, working uh, with a, a researcher just to get some anecdotal because Tim has been asking this question for our 150 plus guests now. <laughs> um, and so it's been really interesting to hear people's responses. And there's been a split. There are people who can listen and, and definitely do listen to music yeah. when they when they work or they write. And there are definitely people who do not. So, but April, so you do listen when you do it, but house music typically doesn't have a lot of words in it. Can you listen to music that has words in it and write? That's another delineation that we've we've seen as as some of this yeah the 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 more the more confusion in there the better for me it's kind of (laughs) (laughs) and I think um yeah so I'm I'm lucky enough that um one of my colleagues from my master's um works with us at Cowrie too and she likes to to tell stories of how I'd be in the library writing an essay and I just I I can't help but I kind of dance at the same time which is really which is really (laughs) embarrassing and I think I'm not doing it um, yeah. How how in the world can you like be so engaged in the music that you're moving your body and able to stay focused on the task at hand? I just may, it, I mean, it could it could be part of that principle of flow, you know, kind of getting you into that state. I kind of when I'm listening to music and writing, I really yeah, I lose 
track of kind of space and time and get them to that flow state. I wonder whether for some people it helps their flow and for some people it hinders their flow. And yet, Jez, you prefer complete silence? Yeah, I mean, um, I think all these comparisons are really good. Um, I think one in our family is half of the family uh, are owls. They love late dark nights and half the family (laughs) are larks. And um, I've got two sisters. One's an ex-doctor and one is a current teacher. And we were blessed with waking up at about half past four and five o'clock in the morning with absolutely crystal clear thought and purity of thought. And I always remember when, when I'm doing pitch work, um, when in my advertising career, um, often you'd have this kind of percolation overnight, and then and then wham, you know, at five o'clock, a strategy could be written. And it's much to to my, you know, I love it, um, but my team hate it because they look at their emails and there is a three minute past five email, and and, and I, I I do make sure I go. I'm not expecting a response at three minutes past five, so you know, uh, surely yeah, it it can wait. So so yes, yeah, so I think. Um, yeah, for me, I mean that's that. But I think music is such a powerful thing, and and m- my wife um, is is similar, I think. But my children, yeah, the, the boys definitely um, love to have, you know, music that I just don't understand. But you know, that, that's that, <laughs> ever, ever, the, ever the twain, ever the twain, ever the twain. I pretend I do. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jeff yeah. pretends that he's down with drill music and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was. Um, yeah, I was trying to because because I don't know I don't know if you find it Tim, but they they sort of listen to Stormzy and you know and then Drill is kind of like this this derivative form as I understand it from from Grime and um but like I was listening to Public Enemy you know and it's uh, it'll take a million to take us down Nation to Millions gets down and like I was like this is amazing like Public Enemy were just they were just like political they were out there everything had meaning it was different and and they were like yeah. Yeah, this is very different. I'm like, no, it's it's like it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, exactly. It's just yeah. Well, the neuroscience is pretty. I, I, uh, you, you mentioned 18 to 21. I think mm-hmm. um, I think Steve Levitt uh, did some work on the neuroscience side of this, and mm-hmm. and for boys it's like uh, 13 to 18, and for girls it's more like uh, 16 to 20. Two or so, uh, it, it broad generalization, right? Very, very, very yeah. broad. Uh, but those those songs get imprinted on our brains. They, you know, they make a they they make an imprint that remains with us. That whenever we hear that song, exactly as you're describing, Jez, it takes yeah. us back because uh, yeah. that listening to the song again today takes us back to the very first occasion that we heard it. Uh, yeah, in, in a really oh, yeah. Good way. Oh, oh. Or, or a use case. I was I was chatting to Zeba, who's our head of consulting, and she's a little bit older than April. And and I was saying I was talking about on your your first date when you're trying to get to like first, second, and third base. And um, in 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 the UK, there was a particular song and, and an artist. There was an artist called Sade, and she I don't yep. know if you remember Sade. She had this song, Smooth Operator. And yep. and and if you know, if, yeah, if you were trying to you know get a little bit familiar with your partner then smooth operator was a good song to get to, to off first base for sure and um, i'm not so sure i was particularly smooth but the music might have helped. i'm interested tim in what you said there about it the the age bracket happening slightly later for women than, than for men because it isn't you know m- m- most of the developmental milestones um they're girls hitting them before boys because their prefrontal cortex a bit quicker. Yeah, it so is. It, uh, I, Do they but suggest I think why? 
I, I don't remember. Uh, I actually don't don't remember. But I, I'll be happy to uh, send you a link. the uh, the The book is yeah, our, gonna... our our brain on music, and it's a it's a tremendous uh, tremendous work of neuroscience and behavioral science uh, integrated with music. It, it is interesting, though, Jez. I have a teenage boy myself and a ten year old daughter, and so. Uh, it was really interesting because they loved my music when they were younger. And now that they're getting to this age where it is, they, they're having their own ideas and own things. And I try to get them on going, but you guys love this stuff. And they're going, oh, no. It's yeah. like, that's yeah. boring. They this still is like, like Hamilton, it, though, right? They, they, still they, like, they Well, but yeah. Hamilton wasn't mine. I mean, Hamilton was yeah. theirs that they brought in. And, you know, my... Yeah. My son is big into some, I, I don't even know what kind of rap that I sit there and I'm going, I go, but here's some public enemy. And there I go, yeah. yeah, this is like 80 stuff. What are you talking about? It's like, yeah, big cross yeah. sign up. They don't exactly. want to talk. They don't want to touch me. Yeah. It's like, this come on. This is Chuck D. <laughs> Flavor Flav, come on. He's a big clock around his neck. Why wouldn't you love that? Oh, well, April and Jazz, thank you. This has been uh, illuminating and really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, we will, uh, for, for listeners, go out, get, get Ripple. It's a great read, uh, easy read, uh, but has some really great insights on it. And so and we'll, we'll, all the information and contact stuff will be in the show notes. So, so, so look that up. Thank you. Very yeah, much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, Tim and Kurt. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Jez and April, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our applied behavioral science brains. I love that. Applied yeah. behavioral science. Well, that's what their book is really about. It's that's not this about. theoretical tome. It is about applying behavioral science in the real freaking world with real problems, with real people, not some college students that getting paid, you know, minimum wage to come in and do some experiments. Not that that's a bad thing. Not a bad thing. It's a great way of not a bad thing. What I love about what, what researchers can do in a lab is to isolate a specific element of a behavioral function uh, or intervention and and be able to call that out and say, this is the thing that's that's instrumental in making something work or not work. Whereas in a business world, pretty much we're often just left with, wow, there's a lot of noise in the environment. We tried this and guess what? We had this kind of effect, but we can't pin all of the, the behavior change just on that one intervention. That's that's the challenge, I think. Right. And it and this is the work that we do, right? You and I do this work with our clients and we're, we're living in a very noisy world that has a lot of inputs, a lot of confounding variables. And the fact of the matter is, is that our clients don't really care if it is a aspect of loss aversion or if it is an aspect of choice architecture or an aspect of the framing of the message. What they care about at the end is, are we changing the behaviors that we set out to do? Now, applying behavioral science into that, right, bringing that research in is our job to be able to go into them and say, 
we think these will will move the needle more so because of these aspects of this. And that's what I think Jez and April are doing in this book is they're saying, look, we're moving the needle and we're doing these interventions, but it's not just because we want to try crazy things because it's based on real science that's there. Mm -hmm. And again, pink walls, perfect example of this. Why would you ever want to go in and paint your walls pink? But we know that pink has this calming effect and a different aspect of how people respond to that color. And so let's try it in, in an application that is safety focused. Um, And it worked. And it worked. And so is that, yeah, is that the only thing that influenced that? We don't know. Right. But the, the the construction firm doesn't care. The construction firm is looking, look, we're we're keeping people safer. And if we're keeping people safer because it's pink walls or because of some other element that is there, we're keeping people safer. I, it, it reminds me of a, a project that I did with um, a global oil uh, firm that uh, what they, when they have plants, they do this, what they call a turnaround. And in 24 hours, they completely shut down the plant, clean things that are never cleaned, and then bring it back online. And it's extremely dangerous that people can lose their lives uh, in, in, this, in these turnarounds, these 24-hour projects. And and we proposed the idea of just trying recognition. What if we could actually recognize and then use social proof that, hey, you know, Team 27 down in, you know, uh, this particular part of the plant has com- successfully completed this without any errors and without any injuries. And and just by and sharing that in real time as the, pl- the plant was going through this 24 hour. And guess what? They, they emerged 100% safe no injuries, no OSHA uh, infractions, uh, those kinds of things. So, so something as simple as recognition ended up helping. So, uh, so we have, we have experienced uh, this and the clients really don't care how we get there to, to a large degree. They just care about just getting the results, right? They just, they just want answers. As, as right. you so what did you find interesting besides it's the applied part of this? Well, gosh, I mean, the applied part just dominates everything, right? What aspect of the applied part do you then want to discuss more? Well, could we spend just a minute on the quiz that that Jez and April developed that they give clients when they come in to get to sort of agitate their their client's brain to get them off of the idea that of course everything that I do is is pretty perfect and uh, I'm not really subject to those biases and and uh, mental shortcuts so so that doesn't really apply to me and. April even said that they developed the quiz in part to kind of catch out the, the the clients. And so my first thought was, I love challenging their, uh, a client's thoughts around this because all of us, me included, have the belief that everything that I do and say is perfectly rational, of course, uh, or that I can rationalize it if I, if I wasn't being rational. And so I've used optical illusions to as an analog for cognitive illusions. And that has been, for me, a softer way of getting to what I think is the same point, rather than just kind of pushing somebody with a quiz to to find out whether or not they can answer a question correctly, so to speak. But I know that you've you've had a different approach on this. Well, I don't know if I've had a different approach. I use the the 
the illusions a, a lot because I think that they work. But I would be very interested in in pushing this because I do think that sometimes trying to get business people interested in why do we even use behavioral science is they don't see a value in the behavioral science. And so sometimes you just have to knock people on the side of the head to get them to realize, look, we are all influenced by these biases and heuristics that we have in ways that we don't understand and don't acknowledge, and you don't do it either. And sometimes it takes that, wow, I thought I would have done this differently um, to, to have that happen. And again, we've talked about this multiple times. Your 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 client who was the cash, you know, cash culture, and you guys you had done that work with Dan Ariely to show something different. You want to explain a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a, a project that I did with Dan, and it was a global uh, telecommunications firm. You know, global one hundred telecommunications firm, and we. We went through 16 of their call centers and and we picked out four couple that were top performing and a couple that were poor performing and used them to decide whether to, to test the efficacy of non-monetary rewards in a culture that had already been using cash rewards. And we used similar amounts of cash as they had been used. And we, so so we designed a system uh, or a test so that two of the, call, of, the, of the call centers would get more cash than they normally got in the same value of the non-monetary awards that we gave the other two, uh, the other two call centers. And what we found was that by a f- long margin, the people in the non-monetary awards, and I'm talking about things like, um, like binoculars and umbrellas and crockpots and slow cookers and things like that. But those people didn't know exactly what the value of it was. So they, we, we didn't promote it as this is a $60 slow cooker. It was just, here's a slow cooker as a, as a reward. And, uh, and those, those people in the non-monetary condition outperformed the cash group by about 43%. It was a significant change. Significant, not, not, Five percent, not ten percent, forty-three percent. Yeah, in in objectable measures that were quantifiable, quantifiable, and agreed upon with the client up front. But when Dan and I presented this to to the client, there was a long pause at the end of all the results. And I remember the the woman who was in charge of the the call center. She said, "So maybe you didn't get this, but we're a cash culture." So they had no intention of changing, even though the evidence was so powerful saying that these non-monetary rewards were performing much better than the cash rewards that they were already using. Yeah. And because they had agreed to do it, we thought that they would be open to the results. And and I think that that, that was an error in our, in our own thinking. All right. So if we think about this, right? The idea that Jez and April bring up of having this upfront quiz to say, here are our own biases being highlighted. Is there, you know, if you would have done that in advance, maybe it could have highlighted some of these aspects for this person. Maybe not. But again, thinking through the ways that we have to get people to look at things through a behavioral science lens sometimes requires us to use behavioral science on them. 
right? Well, April brought up the proofing ladder, right? This mm-hmm. idea that there's this incremental approach to just getting a little bit of learning and a little bit of comfort, and then you move to the next level up, and then you get a little bit more comfort, a little more learning, a little more experience. And I, I don't think we did a good job of doing that. I think that to a large degree, we failed. We didn't get them to really express their goals for what they wanted or what they were willing to do. Or, or to figure out a way to get them past the status quo and uh, say, look, you know, you have to think back and try to analyze this, go, what what happened? Why was this person so adamant that even given these fantastic financial and performance results, they were unwilling to to try that? Did they think it would be too hard? Was there going to be pushback, other different things? So what are those those aspects? But again, just getting people to to move beyond that initial gut reaction, that system one thinking on this sometimes is is difficult. And that proofing ladder, I think is really interesting. You and I, you know, we've done, uh, we're working with a large uh, cable, you know, communications company. uh, And we did a short nine series internal, uh, podcast for them about behavioral science, where we did nine episodes on different behavioral science pieces, where we interviewed managers and leaders and and employees from the company and used that as part of this. But now that was the initial piece and they saw the value in that. And now we're looking at doing a larger intervention that is potentially training their leaders and getting them on some human, you know, bringing a more human-centric approach to leadership inside of the organization based on behavioral science principles that we know um, work. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example, uh, Kurt, that we're taking a more incremental approach to building the relationship with this client, and it's probably going to be more successful as a result of it as compared to the, to the project. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kurt, what else, what else got your attention? Well, you know, I think there's um, one of the big pieces of this is this is a book that is really uh, showing these case studies and how the applied side of this gets um, put into practice. And it's almost this do-it-yourself and this democratization of behavioral science. Yeah. The yeah. idea of, of it shouldn't be held by a small series of of outside consultants and experts that really behavioral science should be integrated into human resources, sales, UX, marketing, all of these aspects and fields within an organization. And I thought they did a really nice job of talking about that. Yeah. Isn't uh, one of the goals, I I don't remember who it was that uh, I had the conversation with, but we're talking about the future of behavioral science and maybe it was Michael Hallsworth. And I think he, he kind of in, uh, intimated that an ideal future would be behavioral science doesn't exist, that it's just completely integrated into all of our life, that we're aware of it, that we're thinking about it, that we apply it yeah. and, uh, and, and, at work and at, and at home. Right. So that, that part of your training in getting a human resources degree in college it it involves understanding these behavioral science principles that apply to workers part of your marketing degree is is having this uh, behavioral science 
aspect of how do you influence, you know, your consumers in an ethical way. And Jez and, and, and April talk about this is, look, uh, we're here and, I, and, you know, the goal of the book for them is to teach all of our clients to start using the stuff themselves. Yeah. So yeah. it's giving them the tools and the knowledge to be able to do that. And I think it's one of the things that we like to do too, um, which is why I think we get along so well with those guys. And it's also okay. I, I think at some point, Jez talked about sort of uh, dealing with sort of the standard bag of tricks, you know, and that's that's an okay thing. I think about a conversation we had with uh, Adam Hansen, who is the, the VP of innovation at ideas to go and you know, he's got this innovation sessions and they just start with the basics yeah. the, from a behavioral science perspective. They're just working with confirmation bias and negativity bias and really fundamental stuff. But <laughs> part of the reason they're so fundamental is because they apply to just about everybody in some situation. Uh, and specifically in the innovation work that he does, I think it's a really cool, I think it's okay to just pull out the standard bag of tricks. We don't always have to be plumbing the, you know, the greatest science in every situation, as long as we're getting results. Right. And the piece that I felt was really insightful in this, and I was really glad that Jez opened up, is this idea of being the cleverest person in the room. Oh, yeah. And sometimes that's really, it's it's a big high for people. I mean, I, I know for myself, I get that too, right? Where you're talking about these concepts that people hadn't heard before and they're they're getting excited about it and you're, or you're showing the results of the, you know, this pilot that you did and people are going, wow. And you're saying, yeah, and can, you're getting all these accolades because it's you. And that cleverest person in the room really is one of these things that we just have to get rid of. We have to be able yeah. to say, look, I would like to say that behavioral science is rocket science, but it's really not. It's really some pretty simple, basic human drives that may not be readily apparent at the surface, but once you just get to that really basic, as you said, those basic knowledge pieces, they apply across the board. Now, again, context matters. And sometimes this is, this is where having experts is, I think important is, is being able to come in and say, well, you know, loss aversion worked worked there. So why didn't it work here? Well, you know, you have a different context and different things, and this is how it gets interpreted in these different situations. And having more experience, I think, can help in in doing that. That being said, it also doesn't preclude the idea of just applying some of these basic principles and maybe doing some experiments with those inside your own organization. You don't need to have. Uh, an expert to do it. At, at the same time, experts will still need to exist because I love the analogy of thinking about using a toilet compared to building a toilet. Like the idea of designing a toilet <laughs> is a hell of a lot more complicated than just using a toilet. <laughs> so are you saying that this is all a bunch of shit and, and we're trying to flush it? What what toilet example? Tim, toilet example. Uh, I, you know, just, just if you look at a toilet, you think this is so simple. Of course, anybody could design it, but uh, designing a toilet is actually pretty damn complicated. Okay, I will, I will agree with you there. And All right. So, using a toilet or being or looking at it and saying I could design that 
is, you know, we're just, we're, we're really missing out on the, the complexity that actually goes into it at right. the time. If you had some basic understanding about water flow and gravity and some things like that, you might be able to come up with, with your own and there could be a democratization. This is all analogous to the idea that maybe with some basic understanding of behavioral science, you could just be a corporate practitioner and go out and apply it and, and design things that are not harmful and not unethical and, and, you know, do good work and, and improve the, the quality of your corporate culture or the efficacy of your sales teams or the, the power of your marketing tools, all in good ways. Uh, if you had some basic understanding of behavioral science, that's all I'm saying. I think that is a fantastic statement and I applaud it. And I think with that, uh, I think we can end this and people hang around because we have a bonus track coming up. Hey, Groovers. This is Tim with your bonus track and groove idea from our discussion with Jez and April about their new book, Ripple. To summarize, we talked about how the book intends to demystify and democratize the application of behavioral science by making it more accessible to the masses. We also talked about the purposeful integration of ethical conversations into our work with clients and all agreed that we'd have all had clients that were, well, let's just say less than desirable to work with from time to time. That said, democratizing a set of tools in their nascent form and lacking true universalism is biting off one hell of a big chew. It's honorable and we support their goals. And at the same time, we urge caution to those who might want to go rogue with loss aversion. Lastly, we found the idea of proofing ladder a good one for lots of applications. Successful businesses are wont to status quo, even though they're asking for new ideas, new fresh ideas. Well, Kurt and I have found that the best fresh and new ideas are the ones that bear modest similarity to the old ones. So the proofing ladder allows the journey to truly new fresh ideas to be incremental. And that's probably the best way to go. For your groove idea for the week, here's something to consider. If you're in a job where you feel that you'd love to try out some behavioral science intervention on your company, but don't have the power to do it, give us a ring. Send us a note. Drop us a line. We'd be happy to talk through some of the clever ways that you might be able to work covertly and ethically to bring some behavioral science into your workplace. Thanks for listening, and we hope you leave us a review before you go on to the next episode. Now, we hope you go and find your groove this week.